Well, as Matt shared, turn if you would to Colossians chapter 3. That's where we'll jump in in verse 12 as we talk about our work, that we've looked at what's our aim that God has given us in marriage, what's our place that he's assigned to us in marriage, but then now, what is the nature of our work? That he says, okay, you're the point guard, or you're playing center. Well, now, what does that mean? What is some of the the nitty-gritty that goes into that? Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, And forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, or in the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So imagine getting a call one day from the hospital and then learning that your spouse has had a heart attack, and they've been rushed to the hospital in an ambulance. You've been out. You went out for a, for a mud run, so you're out running a 5K in the mud, and you just finished, and you get the call that they had a heart attack, and they need quadruple bypass surgery, and so you rush to the ER, and you run into the waiting room, and the physician comes out and says, the surgeon goes, okay, we're so glad you're here because we've been waiting for you. You can't start till you're here. And you're like, what? And they say, well, well, you're doing the surgery. You're going to perform it. What do you think you would say? <laughs> now, I don't know if there's any heart surgeons in the room. <laughs> but if you're not, what, what, would you, what would you say? Would you say, great. Let's do this thing. Yeah, I was hoping for it. Or would you go, whoa, whoa, whoa? No. And what would be your grounds for that? What would you say next? I am not qualified for that kind of work, for heart surgery. What if they said, well, you don't have a choice? You have to. This is the only way. And so you go back and tracking mud with you. Well, what's the first thing you're going to need to do? You better clean up. You've got to be washed. Somebody's got to take off your old garments, put on new garments, scrub you down, and cover you in, in, in new dress that's fitting for the operating room. And then you walk into that operating room and you hear the beeping of the instruments. You smell, if you've ever been in a surgical room, just the smell it carries. Everything squeaks because it's so clean. 
and just even the, the weight of the moment, and then you look over, and, and there's your, your mate unconscious on the table, chest laid bare, out. And just people, just nurses and doctors and attendants all around the table waiting for you. And now you, you walk up, and you look down, and there they are. And now are you going to go, hey, let's do this. I'm, uh, now that I'm in new garb, I'm ready. And the surgeon looks at you and hands you a scalpel. What are you going to say next? What do you expect me to do with this? Like, what, what do I do? And he said, well, just cut. You, where? How? What are you talking about? And the more you get into it, the more you're going to start saying, okay, you're going to have to take my hand. You're going to have to control every bit of this because I can't make a single move with this thing, with any confidence that the cut I'm about to make is going to be a healing cut and not a killing cut. It's going to be constructive and not destructive. It's interesting that that if that would be our attitude about physical heart surgery, what should be our attitude about spiritual heart surgery? What should be our attitude about speaking into the lives of our spouses? What should be our posture as we listen? What type of garment should we be wearing? What type of activity should we, who should we be depending on? And so what Paul is going to try to do in this passage is before we get to all the speaking part, let's get the wearing part. Let's get the posture part. Let's get the who you depend upon for everything you do next part. Which is why he says, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. And I think that's meant to take our breath away. I think that even takes a lifetime to recover from, just the fact that you are chosen of God, holy and beloved. And this is not the kind of choosing that you do when you pick a pickup football team at camp. This is not the choosing of your key team to go do something in business. No, this is God walking into the orphanage and choosing the kids that are in the worst shape. The kids that need the most help. The kids that he has chosen for redemption. This is not who's the best, and I'm going to choose them for the team. Especially when we think about that none of us really wanted to be chosen, right? Jesus walks in the room when we're unbelievers and says, all right, who's with me? Who wants to come join my team? None of us go, oh, me. We go, huh? Isaiah says, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot, this is talking about Jesus, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. So we didn't choose him. He chose us. And Jesus is going to say that to his disciples. You didn't choose me. I chose you that you should go bear fruit. 
But just that idea that, okay, he's chosen us because of his steadfast love, not because of something in us. He doesn't look at us and go, wow, so impressive. I've got to have one of those. No, it's, it's like you going to the kennel to pick a dog to adopt, and there's one in the corner that's like drooling and rabid and snarling when you get within five feet. And you go, that's the one I want. That's the one that is going to really show the power of my grace when they see what I do with that one. That's how we're chosen. (laughs) While we were yet enemies, Scripture says, Christ died for us. That while we were yet enemies, he adopted us and redeemed us and is now transforming us. Chosen of God, but not just that, holy. He doesn't say you will be holy. He says you are holy. Those who are chosen of God and you're holy. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. You're set apart for God, that he actually looks at you and says holy. Isn't that amazing? To think that, yeah, in all our past rebellion and sin and all our present struggles and sin, it like that he looks at us through Christ. He's put us into Christ. He's given us new hearts in Christ and can say, okay, holy, you're mine. You're set apart. But then thirdly, and, and beloved, so not begrudged. It's, sometimes I think some of us have this image that, okay, he saved me, but then if I were really to walk into his presence in heaven and enter into the throne room, he'd kind of frown, right? He'd go, oh, they're here. It's like, all right, come in. I mean, you're chosen and holy and everything, but can you just go sit in the corner? Look at the wall. I don't want to really look at you. How many of us, that's sort of our view of God's sort of posture toward us? Or it all depends on how well we're doing spiritually. We're doing well, and he's like, oh, come on. Man, get up in my lap. Love you so much. If we're not doing well, it's like, oh, go sit over there. What Paul's saying here is no beloved Loved with a steadfast love, love before the foundation of the world, loved with an enduring kind of love that isn't sort of based on what you're doing or not doing. That you walk in and he's open arms. Yeah, there's a, if you ever heard of the film Anna and the King, which is sort of based on The King and I, but it's Jodie Foster, it's a sort of a more modern, modern meaning 20 years old remake of, of that story. There's a scene in it that I'll never forget where Jodie Foster is the English teacher that comes to teach all the children of the king's harem and, and her son on the first day gets into a fight with the king's firstborn son. That kind of the king's firstborn son sort of provoked some things and insulted the memory of um, the, the dead father of Jodie Foster's son and so they go at it and as they start fighting, everything breaks loose out in this gazebo where the class is happening with all the kids. As it breaks loose, one of the daughters of the king runs out of the gazebo and and runs into the palace. And the camera kind of follows her as she goes down the hall. She comes to the throne room door, opens this massive door. And as she opens the door, it opens to the scene of what's going on in the throne room. Where it has hundreds of servants prostrate on the ground. Because they're not allowed to look at the king without permission. And then down at the front, there's a row of people kneeling before the king, and someone's presenting their daughter to the king in marriage. 
and everything's reverent and respectful, and he's exalted up on this throne up these stairs. And what's amazing is this daughter just it follows her feet. She just runs through all these prostrate bodies. And then she gets to that front line on the knees, and she sort of pushes through them. And then she runs up the stairs. And what do you think happens next? And just comes right to his lap. And he stops what he's doing and he leans down and she whispers something in his ear. And then he stands up and she takes his hands and leads him out. I remember watching it going, that's it. That's what we have. That's what it means to be adopted, chosen, holy, beloved of God. That angels prostrate. Wings covering their face. They don't look at them. Wings covering their feet the holiness of the place, perpetually flying and crying out, holy, holy, holy. But the child of the king just comes in, just walks up, whispers in his ear, and he doesn't cast her out, doesn't throw her away. Why does he do that? Why does he walk out with her? Why isn't she struck down by the guards that are everywhere? Why not? Who is she? She's a daughter. And daughters get to come different. Sons come different. So that, that's what Paul's getting at. You're chosen of God. You're, you're holy and beloved. And just that identity, again, that sense of this is who you are. It's important because everything he says next builds from that. It says, so, as those who are chosen of God, holy and beloved, and everything he says after is rooted in that truth. This is who you are. Therefore, he says, put on a heart of compassion. Compassionate hearts. As those who have received much compassion from God, put on a heart of compassion. So in marriage, again, just praying, Lord, give me compassion when my mate is struggling. Give me compassion when they're exhausted. Compassion when they're fretting over things. Compassion when they're burdened. Compassion when they're weak. Things that, again, aren't natural to us. Remember even a few weeks ago when we had a big weekend coming up, a Saturday where we had to drive our kids all over North America for various things that somebody committed them to. I don't know who did, but... Um, and I get the call from Ruth as I'm... As I'm coming back from something that, that she's gotten sick. And so she caught whatever we'd had in our house for the previous nine years and had been just rotating through. <laughs> uh, and now she goes down. And the first thought that came to my mind was, oh no, that's so much on me today. First thing hits is, oh, I got to drive all these kids. I got to go all to these things. The stuff now that's on my plate. Well, again, that, that's, a, that's an indicator. That's not a heart of compassion. I'm not thinking, oh, sweetie, I'm so sorry. <laughs> you know, that, it's been, yeah, that, this virus is ugly, and I'm going to pray for you, and don't, you know, we'll, we'll take care. That's just not where I went. And so, again, it's a great evidence that, okay, am I driving around in a place of chosen of God, holy and beloved? Or am I listening to conservative talk radio just getting frustrated? 
or am I listening to whatever I'm listening to, whatever songs that are as godless as can be, but, but, and that's what's pouring into my heart? Or am I just dwelling on and meditating on my own fantasies, my own ideas, my own, here's what I want to do, and that, so that when, then when the call comes, that I'm not in it wearing compassion. Put on compassionate hearts. But also a heart of, of kindness, which I think sort of also means this idea of, of generosity, of loving kindness toward others, that when we think about the kindness of God toward us, how generous he's been toward us, how he enters into our world not angry or, or mean or to take, but to give. Put on a heart of kindness. Put on a heart of humility. Again, as we think about Christ, according to Philippians 2, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And when we think about that humility, that here's God who was himself God, going to empty him. We can't even claim that. So us being humble just means act right-sized, right? Act what we are, born lowly, redeemed as servants, as slaves of Christ. Jesus actually has to lower himself. He tells us, just act where you are. Bond slaves of Christ, redeemed, take, put on humility, which is why when we're humble, we can't look at ourselves in the mirror and go, man, I'm crushing it with humility. I'm just, I'm on fire with being lowly. No, rather, it's like the servant that Jesus talks about in the parable that says, I've just done my duty. <laughs> humility, I've just assumed the posture that is right for me. And yet we need His grace to, to again, humble us. Because there is something about chosen of God, holy and beloved, that Paul thinks is humbling. When we really think about where we were and what God has achieved for us in salvation and being adopted into His family and given the riches of His kingdom, that's meant to humble us. Then put on a heart of gentleness. Because you think about the careful, gentle way of the Savior with us. Isaiah 42, He will not cry out or raise His voice, nor make His voice heard in the street. A bruised reed He will not break, and a dimly burning wick He will not extinguish. This is talking about the Messiah that's going to come. He's going to be so gentle, so meek, so careful with those He's come to redeem. And so just to think about His... Am I putting on a heart of gentleness when I speak to my mate? Gentleness, just in my facial expression. Usually our spouses who know us long enough, they, they know by our face that we're not in a gentle place. By our tone, by the words we use. And there's something in all of us that thinks if I have to say this three times, I get to say it however I want. Right? Like I was gentle twice. I mean, number three, even God can't expect me <laughs> to be gentle three times in a row over this. 
And so there is something about we can't take our cues from the circumstances or just getting it to work. There's something about thinking the goal is to get people moving. The goal is to get people doing what they should do. And, and gentleness hadn't worked. So I guess i got to raise the volume. i got to go to an amplitude. i got to take a tone and a force to this. That'll get people moving. And how many of us, our spouses, go, oh, thank you, now I see. You know? <laughs> when you were being gentle, it just wasn't clear. But, but now that you're harsh, I mean, it's, wow, thank you. Or, or will even that just have a hardening effect? So put on a heart of gentleness. He says, and put on a heart of patience. When we think about the Father's patience toward us, just how long has he endured with us? How many years of monkey business does he just bear with us in? How slow is our sanctification? In knowing that God could just do that and perfect us, he could just do that and kill us and we're in glory and it's over. But there's something just about him showing his grace and his glory that is evidenced in his patience. Paul says, this is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost. Not I was, I am. He says, yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me Christ Jesus might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. That people would look at Paul and go, whoa, Saul of Tarsus? God saved him? God's redeeming him? That is one patient God. That that's actually something that people should conclude from your life. Whoever their God is, he is patient. <laughs> Are we okay with that? With, God, with people seeing us and going, well, that is an ugly sinner. But he or she sure has a patient Savior. And then that be some, the conclusion that God wants people coming to. Well, how much more then in our marriage do we need to be patient with one another as God is patient toward us? Romans 2, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Like we really think, okay, if I just really level them, then they'll repent. When really, no, it's kindness, actually. God's kindness that softens the heart to repentance. It really is a work of the Spirit. Um, and then he sort of also explains what that patience really means. So it's patience, meaning bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. So patience here, he's sort of, in the Greek, opening that up to say, here's what we mean. I say, this kind of patience, it means bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. In his book, This Momentary Marriage, John Piper makes the point that there's sort of two major streams that we have to deal with in marriage regularly with our mate. One is strangeness, and the other is sinfulness. There's just going to be things about your spouse that seem really weird to you. Just ways they see the world, ways they think about things, their sense of humor, their opinions. Like Ruth and I walk into a house and there's just toys and clothes everywhere. Like, I don't know what's so hard about hanging up a towel. 
I just, I don't get that. Like, hang up the towel, you know? Or what's so hard about putting the dirty clothes in the hamper and the clean clothes in the drawer? Instead, they're just all on the floor, somehow. <laughs> Toys, I mean, the, the, I need insurance for my house for physical injuries due to toys. I mean, there's something about the dangers that are inherent. Like, I mean, if you walk through your house with lights out, you must not have kids because there is such peril in walking through your home without clear vision. But I look at that and I just go, suffocation. That's what I feel. My wife looks at it and goes, life. She thinks there's so much life here. And I hear that and I go, that's weird. Like, I, I don't get that. Why, you're just, you just like this. Then she says those ridiculous things like, oh, someday you'll look back and appreciate all this. I'm like, no, I'm not going to look back and appreciate, <laughs> you know. And so in those moments, he, he's like, bear with each other on a thousand different things where your spouse is going to think about it like this. You're going to think about it like this. Your spouse is going to find this really hard where you're going to find it really easy. Or something you're going to find hard, they're going to find easy. At a hundred different points of conversation, you're going to be struck with, this is alien to me, this kind of thinking about it. And Paul goes, bear with each other. Learn to appreciate it. Learn to delight in some of the diversity, to delight in some of the differences. But then the second stream is actual sinfulness. There's going to be times where your spouse says things that are unkind, times that your spouse acts in a way that are selfish, times that you're just going to say and do things with each other that cause pain. And Paul says, forgive each other. So bearing with one another's strangeness, forgiving one another's sinfulness, and he says why, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. See how it always goes back to the gospel. <laughs> always goes back to Christ. It always goes back to having to meditate on how God has loved us in him, how God has forgiven us, as opposed to taking your cues from your spouse. It's not, as your mate deserves, forgive them. It's not, depending on how many times they've done this, forgive them. It's not, depending on how serious it is or how hurt your feelings are, forgive them. No, the standard is, as God in Christ has forgiven you, forgive one another. In verse 14, and above all these things, put on love. In a way, that's a word that summarizes almost everything we're saying. Bear with one another in love. Forgive one another in love. Have compassion and gentleness and kindness and humility in love, above all these things, put on love, which means joyful self sacrifice for the eternal good of the other. That's what love is. It's when we think about just the height of what agape love in Scripture is, it's a heart affection that gives itself to others, that is joyful self sacrifice, compelled by the Spirit for their good. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffer. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness. 
but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and that's what builds unity in marriage. He's going to say that, above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Like, how many of you want perfect harmony in your marriage? Right, we do. And so he says, well, then, above everything else, put on love. That's your part. That's your work in marriage. Is, and as we know, that's not a fruit of the flesh. That's a fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And so put on love. Walk in the Spirit. Feed on the Word. Depend on Him so you can bear the fruit of love. And that's what will actually bring about harmony. It's not agreement. That's not what harmony is. See everything the same way. Do everything the same way. Be treated the way you want to be. No, it's, it's love. Put on love, which builds unity. And then let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. Jesus is going to say to his disciples, my peace I give to you, but not as the world gives. It's a whole other peace that he puts in us. It's peace with God. It's forgiveness of sins. It's a clear conscience. It's security as beloved children and just the peace of knowing we're his. He's with us. He's near to us. He's for us. That's the peace that he gives, not as the world gives. And what he's saying is, let that rule in your hearts. How much just sort of foolish, hurtful things do we say out of anxiety in our marriages, out of fearfulness, out of agitation? Just think about it. If, if you're running around your house like a maniac because you're late and everything is discombobulated, you're agitated, you're, and then something else goes wrong, how likely is it that the love of Christ will pour out at that moment? And so we see why Paul's saying, no, you have to let the peace of Christ rule you. Like your heart has to be settled in him. Realizing that really nothing else does matter. This is probably one of the areas where my wife helps me the most. It's just remembering what a big deal is. That whatever this spill is, apparently it's not a big deal. I don't believe it, but okay, you got to tell me that. i got to hear it. Apparently this window that just shattered from that baseball I told him not to throw is not a big deal. No, it doesn't mean that sin isn't a big deal. It doesn't mean that working it through, but rather that it, the thing, isn't the big deal. That Christ is the big deal, and loving as Christ is the big deal. And so it's, again, letting the peace of Christ rule in such a way that, that I have perspective about what matters. It doesn't take long on social media or on the internet or anything to realize we're a culture that has lost perspective <laughs> about what matters about what's important, and it's no wonder there's no peace because hearts aren't at peace. So words aren't at peace. Relationships aren't at peace. And so Paul's giving us, here's the, here's the, the key. Let the peace of Christ rule your heart, which protects unity, he says, and then adds thanksgiving, that the gift of peace we're given when rightly understood makes us constantly thankful. 
We can come to God and say, look at all the things my spouse isn't doing right. And he can look at us and go, hey, by the way, your sins are forgiven. And what's that supposed to do? Make us thankful. And no matter what it is we bring to him, he can say, hey, you're adopted. You're, you're secure. All the riches of Christ I've given to you. I'm preparing a place for you in heaven. You know, on and on and on. He goes, there's all this to be thankful for, that when it's peace, when we're not just agitated, trying to get, trying to worry about losing, and we just realize what we've been given, it's just thanksgiving. It's why we, you know, we have the story of the Exodus narrative that just keeps coming back. To, they're going to be redeemed from slavery in Egypt. They're going to be brought through the Red Sea. They're going to be redeemed through the blood of the Lamb. So something's going to die and shed its blood so they can go free. Then they're going to get to the wilderness where God says, all right, I'm, he's leading them in a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud and loving them and caring for them, providing manna from heaven. But yet every single new part of the story, what do we hear from them? It's grumbling. And we're meant to see that just ourselves and that human tendency to forget what has been given, forget what we actually have, and then just grumble about meat, grumble about not having water, grumble about Amalekites, grumble about fill in the blank. And so there's something that all of our marriages need, and that is thanksgiving. And so I find in hard days, it's worth just take out a pen and paper and just begin to list things you are thankful for things you want to praise God for, things you've been given in Him that's worthy of, of gratitude, and ways in which you can actually be grateful for your spouse. That usually the things that most irritate you about them are the things you most need, the things that are often most good for you, the things, the ways in which God's going to use them to actually sort of soften up your hard edges, to actually produce in you humility. So that even that we can be thankful for. We can go, wow, Lord, thank you. I need this. I need what's happening. And then the word of Christ, and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We're just to be people of the word. People who read God's word, who listen. This is him speaking. This is God speaking to us through his word. Like light to our path like lenses through which we're now to see the world, like the very revelation of who Christ is and what God has done through him. Yeah, the very food for our souls, the, the water that we even drink on. Like Scripture uses so many illustrations to describe itself and what God's word is to us. And so let it dwell in us richly, not poorly, but but richly, and then teaching and admonishing one another. In other words, now we're ready for surgery. Like after all that, now we're ready to say something. Isn't that something? How much needs to happen in our hearts before we're ready to take the scalpel and cut into the heart of our mate? And what's interesting is God really does expect us to do the surgery, rather to be used by him in the surgery. And so the, the heart surgery illustration we started with, it really is how he's thinking about it. 
All right, glad you're here. Your spouse is on the table. You're assisting in this. You're going to hold the scalpel. And we go back and go through all that we described earlier, and there we are standing, and we're handed that scalpel to cut. And now what are we going to do? It says now we're ready to, to at times teach, to say, okay, honey, you're thinking, saying, feeling this, but the Word of God says this. We're to teach and admonish one another from the very words of God and to do that with thankfulness in your hearts to God, meaning if we're the one giving the surgery or the one receiving the surgery, that there be thankfulness. Because sometimes you're the one God's using to do surgery, and other times you're on the table. And you have to ask yourself, what kind of patient are you when God is using your spouse to do surgery? For some of us, it's like doing surgery on a live brook trout. Like they're just flopping around. You just can't get them to hold still. At other times, you look down and it's like a medieval knight just covered in armor. There's just like, how do you cut through the barrier, the defensiveness and the, all the what ifs and but this and just we're so defensive that nobody's going to get through. Or we're so squirmy and evasive that you can't even get us to hold still on the table. And so it works in two sides. What kind of assistant to the surgeon are we? What kind of patient are we? I mean, God's saying, all right, hold still a minute. I'm going to use your spouse to cut on some things. Painful as it may be, can we go, okay, I, I trust you, Lord, as you use my mate in this work. And the reason for all of it is the glory of God. Where he says, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. How often is thanksgiving mentioned? You notice in this passage, how many times does he use that word? Three times, right? Keep him and be thankful. Be thankful. Be thankful. Do all things, whether word or deed, in the name of the Lord Jesus, meaning for his glory, for his honor. So as we're there over the surgery table with our maid, and we're saying, all right, Lord, Take me by the hand, like you've got to hold my hand with every cut. You've got to guide me with every word. You've got to lead me with every deed. Because this is all in your name. Like our practice, our medical practice is under his malpractice insurance. It's under his name. It's his reputation. And so if people keep leaving the surgery center in, in pieces then that's, again, that's in his name. So what we have to ask ourselves is, as I speak to my mate, are these words, are these deeds God's using in healing, or are they just creating more things the surgeon has to heal? Am I actually an assistant in this process of redemption, or am I actually sort of opposing it? With each work God's wanting to do in repairing, I'm actually chopping off a new limb. And so again, you see where Paul's wanting to get our hearts right in the work. What's the aim? Well, the, the glory of God, the exaltation of Christ, conforming all of us to his image, his kingdom, his glory. What's our place? Well, we're, we're ambassadors for Christ. We're assistants in the surgery. What's our work? Well, it's compassion. 
Our work is kindness, gentleness, humility, patience, bearing with each other, forgiving each other, being at peace and letting the word dwell in us in a way that now when we speak, we're speaking on his behalf with God's words. You'll see there in your booklet, there's some, again, some questions for your own reading and discussion that we'll have plenty of time in the hours ahead that you can meditate on these, talk over them at, at lunch. And so let's pray. Well, Father, we do give you thanks for choosing us. It's amazing. Not because of any good we've done, but because of your mercy for making us holy through your spirit, joining us to your son, forgiving our sins, clothing us in his righteousness, and for making us beloved. Well, you, you've loved us. You do love us. You will always love us. And so help us to relate to you as beloved children. Help us to relate to one another. As beloved children, make us wise as we labor with you in surgery. Make us humble as we receive the words and deeds of our mate as from you to sanctify us, to help us. And all of this in Christ's name, amen.